You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Uh, on this very cold, frosty evening. It's wonderful to see so many people here uh, in the Edmund Burke Lecture Theatre. And also, those of you who are joining us online, might be a wise choice tonight, a bit cosier, but it's lovely uh, uh, that you're all here. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you all. Tonight, we reconvene for the first of our talks as part of our series, What Does It Mean to Be Human in the 21st Century? Along with our uh, partners uh, at the DOC, uh, the Human Insights Lab, and, and colleagues from Accenture and Accenture's global research, uh, uh, well, the DOC is their global research innovation hub. If you're from Accenture, give out a roar. <laughs> oh, this, that's lovely. So you're all mixed up. I cannot tell you how thrilled we are to be working with you all. It's absolutely uh, uh, wonderful. And we've already had a whole series of fabulous engagements with uh, colleagues from the DOC and the Human Insights Lab. So it's, uh, and we obviously kicked off this series with a behind the headlines uh, back in December. So we're so thrilled tonight to be joined by Professor Luke O'Neill. And I'll say a few words about Luke in a moment. Though the truth is Luke doesn't need an introduction, but I will in a moment, Luke. Um, I do, though, want to just very quickly introduce myself and say a few words about the Trinity Long Room Hub. So my name is Jane Olmeyer, and I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is this lovely building, just actually literally on top of this lecture theater. Um, it's our research institute in the arts and humanities. And in the hub, we do three things. So the first thing we do is celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities at Trinity. The second thing we do is promote conversations across disciplines and multi and interdisciplinarity. And tonight is a wonderful example of exactly that. And I'm sure Luke would agree, but we're very lucky here in Trinity to have these phenomenal relationships with our colleagues across the disciplines. Over the years, we've become great friends. We really relish opportunities to collaborate and work together and to share. So this is a great example of this tonight. The third thing we do in the hub is public humanities. We believe passionately that we need to take the learnings uh, from the arts and humanities and more generally to the widest uh, public uh, audiences. So that's the hub. Uh, this lecture series is one of our signature uh, events, what it means to be human in the 21st century. It's a cross-disciplinary uh, lecture series. And we've got a, a whole raft of just fantastic speakers who are going to be joining us uh, uh, over the course of 2019, um, including some of our own uh, stars, starting with Luke tonight. Uh, but over the course of uh, uh, the spring, you'll, you'll get to uh, meet uh, a few of our other amazing uh, stars, including Ian Robertson now will be on in, in February. Um, we couldn't do this without Accenture. And we are so grateful to Accenture for um, being our partners uh, on this uh, series. Um, as I say, it just wouldn't be happening uh, without you guys. Um, I suppose the aim of this series, just very uh, uh, broadly, is to understand that the human experience is very different depending on the lens through which uh, we uh, view it. So over the course of these lectures, we always want to shift that angle. 
and look at the human experience through very, very uh, different uh, lenses. Because the one thing we do know, looking at it from the perspective of the humanities, is where it gets really magical is when the disciplines start to collide. And I think we're going to get a really strong flavor of that tonight uh, from uh, Luke. We also love to ask disruptive questions, to be the awkward ones who are challenging. Um, and again, we feel that that really happens when disciplines collide, but also in this instance where academia is coming together with industry. It creates a, a very, I think, very uh, uh, important environment that allows us to shape and influence in a way that we can't normally uh, do that. So I'm going to turn now to Luke. Um, as I say, he needs very little introduction from me, but he holds the chair of biochemistry here at Trinity, and he leads the inflammation uh, research group. His research has a particular focus on innate uh, immunity, and in 2018, he was named by Caravatis, is that how you pronounce it, Caravatis, uh, as one of the world's most influential scientists, being in the top 100, uh, one, sorry, top 1% uh, in immunology. The top 1% in immunology, that's as good as it gets. And obviously we're hugely uh, uh, proud of, of Luke and the achievement, not just of, of him, but, but his team. Uh, he's been the co-founder of three spin-out companies uh, where they're developing new treatments for inflammatory uh, diseases. He's won a whole raft of awards, and I won't list them all here, uh, aside from the Dublin, uh, Royal Dublin Society Boyle Medal for Scientific Excellence. And I'm really, I, I'm a 17th century historian, so I have to mention uh, uh, Robert Boyle, uh, any excuse uh, to bring the 17th century uh, to a conversation. But he also was elected the Royal Irish Academy, uh, he, he received the Royal Charlotte Academy Gold Medal uh, uh, for uh, Life Sciences. Again, a huge accolade and was elected to the um, Royal Society back in 2016. Again, it's as, good as, it's as good as it gets. But it gets even better as far as I'm concerned because in addition to publishing all these scientific papers, Luke is a historian too. And I say this because I'm sure everybody's seen his, his book, yes, Humanology. So as a historian, I'm seriously jealous. Can you t I'll tell you why. Because this has probably sold more copies than many a professional historian's book would sell. It's been a huge success. And I believe a few copies are available tonight. It's sold out. Uh, it's being reprinted. But uh, if you haven't read it, I would strongly uh, encourage you to do so because it really is a fabulous synthesis. And of course, Luke is well known to many of us in terms of very regular uh, 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 commentator on, on news talk and, and, and other um, uh, radio channels and, and media. So tonight, um, I would ask you all to put your phones on silent. However, for those of you who tweet, if you could use the hashtag Hub Matters and the hashtag being human. We're also live streaming um, our discussion uh, and uh, the lecture this evening, and we will be uh, podcasting it uh, as well. So those of you who want to listen again to Luke's talk, you just go to the Trinity Long Room Hub website and click on uh, uh, listen and uh, watch. So after the lecture, there'll be plenty of time for questions and answers. But now, if I could invite you all to uh, join me in welcoming Luke O'Neill. Thank you very much, Jane, for those uh, kind words. I'm very happy to come and take part in this. It's a wonderful thing 
to be a scientist and talk to Jane, you see, a world expert in history as well. And my book's outselling hers. Not that we're competitive, <laughs> but we love that bit as well. But, um, but, it, but it's, it probably isn't, yeah, but it's no small thing to say what a great thing this is, this lecture series. I'm very happy to, to give one of these lectures. I am a scientist. But it is all about being human. And remember, the ultimate goal of a university is to answer this question. It doesn't mean, you know, that you go to university to get a job. Forget that nonsense, you know. Or forget the economic bit of, I hate all that, you know. <laughs> Universities are really about education, drawing people out, and getting them to talk to people like me and Jane, and hopefully make something of their lives, and let them to lead as full a life as possible, and that's what it's all about. So I'm very happy to come here and, gi and give um, one of these lectures. Now, I'm also here to plug the book, of course. I wouldn't come otherwise. Um, and as Jane has said, uh, I, I'll give you the story of the book in a minute, actually. But, um, you know, it's, it's a strange business when you write a book like that and it sells. Like, you think, oh, I might sell a couple of hundred copies. But it sold 8,000 copies of the hardback, which is incredible. Mainly my family and extended uh, relations have bought it. But it's a real thrill to see it being um, bought by people and people are reading it. You know, it's a real thrill for me for that. So, and I'll thank you all for coming out tonight. It's a freezing cold night out there. You could have stayed at home. So thanks for coming. Uh, big thanks to Jane for the invitation. And Accenture, mention them again. They helped us with the Schrodinger Conference usually, so I want to thank them for that too. Now, let's get into the meat of this topic though, you know, what is it to be human? Now, have you ever heard a more egocentric question in your life? You know, it's horrendous. We're so up our own wazoos, us humans. Um, and let me tell you, we are the least of species on earth. Now, why do I say that? Well, uh, there was a paper in a big eminent journal last summer called the Proceedings National Academy of Sciences in the USA. We make up 0.01% of life on Earth as a species, 0.01%, okay? Even worse, we've made 83% of animals extinct in our time and 50% of plants, isn't that horrendous? And we think we're so great, don't we? You know, it's ridiculous. Secondly, you might ask the question, and I'm sure you all wonder, what is the purpose of life? Did you ever think that? When you were younger, you did a lot. I, I've stopped thinking that now because it doesn't get you anywhere. But, but, uh, but if you're a scientist, uh, the only purpose of life, if you're a scientist, is to copy DNA. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the first cell arose, as I'll explain in a minute, uh, 4.2 billion years ago, the first life on Earth. And that creature, a single-celled organism, had DNA. That's what its genes were made of. And it copied the DNA. And then there were two cells, you know. And then there were, you know, proliferation. And we get many, many different cells. Eventually, evolution begins to happen, of course, and we end up today with all this DNA. The Earth is awash with DNA. It's a biological thing that began 4.2 billion years ago. The only purpose then is to make DNA. If that first cell had said to every subsequent cell, go forth and multiply, we're hopeless, 0.01%. We're not fulfilling the mission of life at all, are we? You know, half the DNA on Earth is in plants, for instance. You know, so we're not really doing this sort of thing that we're supposed to do. So again, we're far too egocentric in many ways to consider this. And then I've put a couple of slides together. You know, every time a scientist does something, and Jane will remember this from the history of science, it makes us less important as a species. You know, we thought the sun went round us. That was nonsense. There's Copernicus, you know. That's the situation. Um, and now we now wonder, is there any life outside Earth? Did you know there are 40 billion planets now, called exoplanets, in the Goldilocks zone around their stars, which means life could be on those planets. There's bound to be life somewhere else in the universe. It's not unique to Earth. We all feel there must be life elsewhere. And two pictures I just put together this afternoon for you. This is the most iconic picture ever, probably. It's the 50th anniversary. It was um, taken in 1968 in the Apollo 8 mission. It's called Earthrise, you know. Isn't it marvelous? And that was taken, and that became a really iconic image. And again, the astronauts said, oh, for heaven's sake, there's the Earth way down there, you know. 
And Neil Armstrong said that when he was walking on the moon, he put his thumb up and his thumbnail blocked out the earth completely. And he said it didn't make him feel big, it made him feel very, very small. Incredible, all life is on that planet. And then it gets even worse. Now, I'm going to crack a joke in a minute, in case you're wondering. Um, look at this image. This was taken by the Voyager spaceship. It was taken about 20 years ago. Voyager has left our solar system and has looked back. And that is the Earth, that little white dot, from six billion kilometers away. Isn't that incredible? This makes you wonder, what's it all about? There's no doubt we're a speck on a speck on a speck on a speck on a speck. Life has no meaning, remember that, okay? How do we deal with this? Thankfully, we have our friends in the humanities to help us. <laughs> That's their purpose, is to give our life meaning. And we turn to the great man himself, waiting for Godot, the best play ever written. What does Sam Becker say? You're on Earth, there's no cure for that. That's, that's, that's in waiting for Godot. So let's get on with it now. Let's get on with this question of what is it to be human. And of course, we love Sam, one of our alumni. He's getting an honorary degree. He only took one honorary degree in any university from in Trinity. He took the one university he took a degree from, which is quite, you know, quite a good thing to say. Now, let's get on with the book plug. Are you ready? So I think, I think Jane asked me because of the book, and, and, and the book actually addresses the question, you know, what is the basis for being a human being? From a scientific point of view, it's through the lens, and that was the way Jane is of science. You know, this amazing existence, can we get a scientific uh, view of it? And uh, the book has an interesting history, I'll give you how it happened. I've written loads of science stuff, you know, like about 393 publications, which very few people read, sadly. <laughs> um, but this book, I thought, well, I was asked by Gill, and they said, well, I do a book for the popular audience said, no, I didn't want to, I was reluctant initially. And then they convinced me, they said, you're going to make money, I'll do it. Um, <laughs> and then they said, oh, come on, Pat Kenny, the radio, so people like it, just do a book. And then, then they said, whatever you want to write about. And I didn't really have any inspiration initially, what would I write about? Looked over my notes from Kenny, it was easy to write, because all my notes were in my office from that slot I do at Pat. And I realized, and I spoke to a postdoc in my lab at the time called Annie Curtis, and over coffee, she said to me, Luke, it's obvious. Start with the origin of life, right? And then do us as humans evolving, and then what makes us human, and then our extinction. That'll be the narrative. And I told them, I said, yes, let's go for it. So I, 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 I put the proposal in, and Gil said, yeah, let's do it. And then I began to write it. I'd never written popular science before, and Sarah Liddy, uh, who was my key person, the editor in, in Gill, said, give me a few pages, and I'll make sure you're any good, right? And it's a bit like when you're in school, and you're at the essay, remember? and the soundtrack of Glen Rowe comes on, and you write the essay, and I gave it to her. And a week later, I met her in the science gallery, actually, expecting her to rip it apart, like, like, like a school teacher. No, I like it. Keep writing, she said, and I kept writing. A bit of encouragement was good, you know. And then finally, the book is produced, and I was amazed at the work they did. I thought it was a little tiny paperback, you know. They got an artist involved, great images. It's a, it was such a thrill to see this book in front of me, you know, and I was so happy with you, and I want to uh, thank them, I guess, for, for putting together such a wonderful book. And then the book is published, and then, as I'm saying, off we go. Now, the book is about the origin of life up to our extinction and everything in between, very ambitious, you know. And one way to convey um, what's in the book and to address the question, what is it to be human, is this. And I've shown this before. This is a great painting by Paul Gauguin. It's called, Where Do We Come From? What Are We? And Where Are We Going? That's the title of that painting, right? And that's what the book is about. And I show this on purpose because, remember, that's an artist's answer to those questions. A scientist might have a different set of answers, but it's the same thing. There is no difference between the arts and the sciences, in my opinion. 
It's all about knowledge and trying to understand existence using different ways of getting at this, you know. And the artist, when he writes a poem or she might do a painting or whatever, is the same as me in my lab trying to answer what's the immune system. It's trying to get some kind of understanding on a very complex thing. And I really believe there's no difference. And in fact, creativity is very important in science. To think of an experiment to do in a lab is no different thinking up about, you know, stream of consciousness technique in a book or whatever. Artists have to be innovative, so do scientists. Where do ideas come from? It's very similar, you know. And so I always use this as an example of one attempt to answer these questions. Now, we're going to go through the questions one by one. Are you ready? It's going to be a roller coaster ride about all of existence. Um, where do we come from? Let's begin with that. Now, of course, there's all these creation myths that humans have often puzzled about this. And the opening sentence in the book immediately disenfranchised half the audience when I said, some people think it's all about two hippies and a talking snake. <laughs> That's Adam and Eve, you see. Um, the, the aboriginals think a rainbow serpent. It's a great myth that shook the cosmos into life. This may be true, remember. If you show me the snake, I'll believe you, right? Because if you're a scientist, you just look for evidence for things, right? And this, who knows, there could be a rainbow serpent. But our mantra tonight and in the book is from the Royal Society. As Jane mentioned, I became a fellow two years ago. Robert Boyle was a founder of the Royal Society, by the way. An Irish guy founded it. Um, the motto in 1660 was nullius in verba. That was the motto. It means take nobody's word. That's the motto of the Royal Society. And that captures science beautifully. Science is all about show me the data or shut up, right? And if I go to a scientific conference and I give a talk, if I haven't got data to back it up, forget it, you know? So show me the evidence. Take nobody's word is what science is all about. And that's what I'll, we're going to use that now tonight. We're going to take nobody's word. What I'm going to tell you is backed by science, the data there. And I was drawn to science. I loved um, literature in school. English was my best subject in school, strangely. Um, enough, not science, and I love literature, but I realized in sixth year, I can't be bothered writing another analysis of Keats or whatever, you know? Um, I was drawn to science because of data. You can do an experiment and then you can see things, and that was quite attractive to me in terms of my future career. But there's our motto, take nobody's word. Now, what's the answer to the question, where do we come from? Well, it's very simple now, and all science agrees, life began on Earth around about four billion years ago. It's a long time ago. And some of the evidence for this is here. Experiments were done to address this question. And remember, scientists want to do experiments. This guy's name is, is Stanley Miller. In 1953, he sets up an experiment when he recreates the early conditions of the Earth four billion years ago. We know, we know from fossils what the Earth was like. And he makes this sort of strange apparatus. This is in, in the book. The artist did a great job on this. So you can see here in this little vessel with the electrode, there's ammonia, methane, and hydrogen. Those gases were in the atmosphere four billion years ago. There was lightning strikes, so he's electrode, and there was heat, probably from hydrothermal vents. And he sets this up, and it bubbles away, and it recirculates very cleverly, keeps condensing. He let that run for a week, that apparatus, in his lab in 1953. Came in a week later, and guess what had happened? A tiny creature was, no, that's a joke. Um, <laughs> What he, what he finds there is amino acids. Now, amino acids, as any biologist here will know, are the building blocks of proteins. Just in the course of a week, with very simple chemicals, you can make amino acids. That's the building blocks of life. This has got better and better, this experiment. It was published in 1953. There's the paper with the apparatus. The same year as a more famous paper, the double helix. We don't mention this anymore. <laughs> Dr. Watson has made a show of himself yet again. But that. <laughs> 
that, that paper came out the same year as this, and yet this is probably more important. Now, this is important as the information of life is in DNA, but the biochemistry was in the Miller paper. And this experiment, last two years ago, they did even better. They, they, they set up in a test tube hydrogen cyanide, hydrogen sulfide, two gases that again were in the early atmosphere, and UV radiation in a test tube. And they made amino acids, nucleotides, the building blocks for DNA, and fats, lipids, these are the three basic building blocks of life, can be made in a week in a test tube. That means life evolved through random chemistry, and the first cell that we're all descended from arises about 4.2 is the latest date on this in, in Canadian rocks is when this happened. No doubt, life is just a chemical reaction. It's very complicated, but life now starts on Earth. And now evolution kicks in, you know, and we got all these great species. There is a bacteria from 3.5 billion years ago that we have, you know. So again, we've got some fossils of these. Imagine that distance of time, you know, it's incredible. Evolution plays out, and all that happens next is an awful lot of evolution, and, and the essence of it is these cells that arise can divide. I mean, there's an onion, there's some onion cells. Um, they've got a great trick, they can copy themselves. That's all life is. Very complex bag of tricks makes a copy of itself and then life then begins to change and evolve and so on. And we get this kind of timeline. You know, we eventually we get eukaryotes, which are multi-celled organisms. Finally, egocentrically, we get to us. We're just here because of evolution, remember, of living systems. Now, the big question then becomes, would we find life on other planets? And as I've said already, big chance we will. It's just chemistry. There's 40 billion test tubes up there, remember, bubbling away, bound to have life outside this system. They found evidence on Enceladus, this moon going around Saturn about a year ago, and NASA found evidence of a thing called free hydrogen. That's what drives energy in living systems. That's been found on a, on a, on a, on a, a moon going around you know, Saturn. So we will find life is the view, because it's just chemistry. It may not be like us, but it will exist. Now, so eventually you get to us. Now, if that time frame was 24 hours from the first cell to us, right, we arrive at three seconds to midnight. That's how recent we are. Homo sapiens, the question we're addressing tonight, uh, arises three seconds to midnight in Africa. No doubt about this at all. 200,000 years ago, Homo sapiens emerges through evolution, okay? And now we're there. Our species is now here. And then we move. 100,000 years ago, we're in the Middle East. We move over there. 70,000 years ago, we go to Asia. 50,000 years ago, roughly, we're in Australia. That's the Aborigines now. Eventually, 15,000 years ago, the biggest mistake ever, we invent Americans because we go to America. Uh, and there's evidence of that. And then interestingly, uh, 40,000 years ago, we go to Europe, right? And guess how many long years ago, Ireland? 10,000 years ago, we eventually end up in this godforsaken freezing cup. What made people stay here? You know, 10,000 years ago, we're in Ireland. And that's the history of humanity based on DNA. We're using DNA as a great tool here in many ways. So in many ways, 100,000 years ago, uh, our relations, if you like, who got like six A1s and the leaving, uh, they go off to Asia and they go to Australia. 60,000 years later, after a few repeats, we go into Europe. And now we're in Europe, and that's the history of our species. And amazingly, when we go into Europe and we go into Asia, we meet two other species of hominids, a bit like us the Neanderthals and the Denisovans. The big question was, did we interbreed with them? Now, it was always felt to be unlikely because these the Neanderthals were like hairy brutes type thing, you know. And yet, we invent a machine to go back in time. That machine is a DNA sequencer. We sequence Neanderthal DNA, and lo and behold, we find we carry some of their genes. That means our ancestors had sex with the caveman, 
and got some of those genes off Neanderthal. Around about 2% of your genes are Neanderthal genes, okay? So we had sex and we inherit these genes. The genes are very interesting, and I'm an immunologist. Our immune system is partly built from caveman's genes because these people live in a very robust environment and they must have a great, strong immune system. We got some immune Addiction genes, nicotine addiction, amazing. It was a gene linked into nicotine, was from Neanderthals. They must have been addicted to some kind of food stuff, we think. So, so we inherit some of the genes we have from Neanderthals. And the Denisovans as well, we get evidence that we interbred with them too. And now we've got our, us on Earth carrying this ancestral DNA. That's what makes us, I suppose, a species you know, with speci specific traits, was the interbreeding with these two different groups of people. And it's very important to remember that. And then, of course, what happens next is, even though we went to Europe uh, 40,000 years ago, we eventually invent machines to go and visit the relatives, you see. And when Columbus goes to America, it's a family reunited after 70,000 years. Remember, the, the bright kid went off to America, you know, as usual. We invent a machine and go and visit them. That's what happened. Same with Australia. We go there in 1776. We meet our relatives that had left us tens of thousands, same species, you know. And now we're all together, hopefully, as one big happy family. The trouble is, what do we do? We kill them, don't we, you know. It ends badly for the native people of America and Australia, you know. And yet, America might now be seen as the melting pot where it's all kind of come together again. That's where we came from, okay? 4.2 billion years ago, humans, and then travel, I guess, and you get to our species. Now, second question then, what are we? Now, of course, this can be answered in many different ways, and I'm going to go through seven of them for you. The rest of the book takes us through these various things that define us as a species, okay? And I'm gonna talk about attraction and love, that always gets attention, you know? Uh, raising children, gender, music, humor, religion, and aging. Let's go through them now. It's, it's gonna be a, a bit intense, get ready. But these are my favorite topics out of the book. And let's begin with attraction. Now, amazingly, this chapter has got the most interest, surprisingly. All the interviews I did to plug the book before Christmas, this is the only chapter they wanted to talk about, you know? which is intriguing, isn't it? And, um, and we all want to know, don't we, what makes us human is we get it on, to quote Marvin Gaye. Uh, and what makes us attracted to someone, it's a mystery. The ancients invented Cupid as a way to explain this mystery, you see someone across a crowded room and all that. It's a fascinating biological question. And uh, back in November, I was plugging the book on the six o'clock show on Virgin Media One. And when the presenter said, um, said so what, what, what is the basis for attraction? And I said to her, Merlin, are you ovulating? <laughs> and she said, pardon? <laughs> it's a scientific, I've never been asked that before, she said. <laughs> and I said, because if you are, you're exuding a pheromone towards me to draw me in, you see, because you want your eggs fertilized, right? <laughs> now, um, this, this is scientifically proven. Deirdre O'Kane, the comedian, ever, ever, her, she was sitting beside me on the couch. She starts laughing. That was a great question. Later in the show, Kevin Dundon, the celebrity chef, is there, and we're all standing around him, and he's making a lovely cake, and he's pouring a very sort of lascivious butterscotch sauce over the cake. And Deirdre goes, Jesus, I've started ovulating, she says. <laughs> so, so that was quite good. But, um, but the truth is, we're a bunch of hormones, and the evidence for this is so compelling. When you meet someone, you're smelling them, first of all. Lots of stuff on that in the book as well. Desire is testosterone, and women have testosterone as well, remember, slightly less than men, but desire is based on those two hormones. And then we fall in love, and it's dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, and NGF, they're the four chemicals of love, right? And for about six months on average, you're obsessed with that person. 
And in fact, when someone's in love and you show them a photograph of the person they're absolutely in love with, right, in an MRI machine, I'm sure Ian Robertson will talk about this in his talk, the bit of the brain that lights up is the same as if you've taken heroin. So this is true. Heroin is mimicking the thrill of being in love. It's piggybacking on a biological system. Now, that lasts about six months, and anybody who's married will know that. <laughs> um, if it went beyond that, we'd all be dead because you'd spend your whole time staring at the other person, and you'd be eaten by the saber-toothed tiger would eat you. So that, that phase has to end, that, that, that massive phase of you know, that intense, obsessive love. And of course, when you're, when you're addicted, you go past their house, you check their Facebook page, you're a pain in the ass, aren't you? You know, that's, that's the addiction phase of love. After six months, if you're lucky, many don't make it that far, uh, attachment kicks in, and that's deep love, and that's oxytocin is the key hormone there. Now, oxytocin is a fascinating hormone. It's made in humans in two situations. When you're in love, and it doesn't have to be man and woman, it can be a child with their parent or anything, this bonding hormone, right? Secondly, when a, when a mother is breastfeeding her baby, they get massive oxytocin rushes, both the baby and the mother, and it bonds them together, right? That's what oxytocin, lovely idea that this bonding hormone is there. Now, much of the research behind this was funded by perfume companies, inevitably. They're trying to mimic these things in a perfume, you see. And they tried oxytocin, they sprayed it on men. They sprayed oxytocin on a man to see if it would make him more attractive to a woman or whatever. All that happened was he got a massive thirst for milk. No, um, that's a joke in the book. Okay, so anyway, oxytocin is the bonding hormone. And this is a bit sobering, isn't it, Jane? What is it to be human? We all think love is, oh, great, bunch of chemicals and hormones, remember? Now, it does go beyond this, as you read. Kindness is evaluated. A big question has been, and this is a good one, um, what you're attracted to. It, 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 every, there is someone for everyone. We've all got little differences among us. But there are universal rules of attraction. A man will find a woman who has a 7 to 10 waist-hip ratio, subconsciously he'll be attracted to that. A woman goes for a man with 10 shoulder, 9 waist, and that's going into your brain, and it's subconscious, you're drawn to those proportions. That's the way it is. And we love symmetry. If, if you look at a photograph of a man or woman and say they're beautiful, it's symmetrical, and there's the famous Vitruvian man, and there's, you know, this is Michelle Pfeiffer. Symmetry defines beauty. It's true, because symmetry means good genes. It means you're built properly. You're not kind of, you know, deformed and symmetry is really beautiful and we're all drawn to these things this universe every culture will have those rules and then the other part of that chapter is um, you, you meet someone and then you go through this phase of love and then eventually you attach what about infidelity now people ask this the whole time as well it turns out humans are classified as mildly polygamous isn't that nice we're not fully polygamous we're mildly polygamous and they found the basis for this as well scientific basis for why you know, where are monogamous or polygamous. And the model organism is the vole. And anybody has anybody done biology in my lectures, that was just an example. This animal is a fascination. There's two types of vole, the prairie vole and the meadow vole. The meadow vole is polygamous, and the prairie vole is a monogamous. And that's really interesting. Why is that difference? It's a single gene difference between these two voles. It's called the vasopressin receptor alpha. The monogamous vault has more of it in their brains, and it makes them monogamous. Isn't that incredible? They've proven this scientifically. So a single gene determines faithfulness. Now, lately, this has been questioned, and the, the, the vole might be a love rat, was the line they used. <laughs> Maybe they cheat a bit. But the best part of this whole study was, guess what represses this gene? Remember, the more of this you have, the more faithful you are. Alcohol represses it. So if you're caught cheating, 
and you go home to your boyfriend, it wasn't me, it was the vasopressin receptor alcohol axis that made me do it. So in other words, there is a, a, a scientific basis for monogamy and polygamy. Now, let's say you get it on and you have a baby and it's all about the sperm and the egg, there's a whole chapter on that. This next chapter in the book is how do you raise a child, right? What's the best thing to do to raise children? Now, every parent, from the moment a woman knows she's conceived, and, the, and hopefully the man who's the father, they worry, should I play Mozart over the belly? Uh, when the baby's born, should I you know, make sure they floss him when they're three years of age? It, uh, the bookshelves are groaning with books about how to raise children, and it's very controversial. This single test is a great one in terms of how you raise children. It's the best one that psychologists have done. It's called the famous marshmallow test, right? Now, this was done in the 70s, back on Meacham and Stanford. And what he did was this. He got some eight and nine-year-olds, and he gave them a marshmallow, and he said, if you don't eat that marshmallow, don't touch it for 15 minutes, I'll give you a second one. Left the room. Imagine the consternation in the child. And then they filmed these children, and the kids who managed to wait 15 minutes, okay, they could distract themselves, they put their fingers in their ear, they put their heads under the table. Those kids, 15, 20 years later, right, had 20% more income, more successful relationships, all the metrics of success, if you will, was higher in the child who could distract themselves. The ones who stuck it immediately in, in their mouth, they did less well in their subsequent lives, right? And this has been re replicated across different, um, different cultures and societies. What was going on here? It's called metacognition. And again, the psychologists will know about this. The child who can distract themselves and think about thinking, it's called, of course, is able to use that trait in many aspects of life, you know, and then they become successful later on. And that seems to be a predictor. Now, why some kids do it and some don't is still a mystery. It was controversial, this study. Sometimes the kid was hungry. Honestly, because he was from a, a bad socioeconomic group, you know, that could be the reason, you see. So be careful how you interpret psychology experiments. And I, I told this story, another little anecdote, we're going to be here all night. Yeah. Um, another anecdote for you. I was on another TV show, I think it was on um, Dahi's One, you know that one. These are rubbish, these afternoon shows. No, sorry. Um, <laughs> I love you, Dahi. Uh, anyway, they asked me this, and I, I, I reminisced. I said, well, when I was 11, this is true, I remember vividly. It was a May summer's evening. I'm playing football outside my house on the road, you know, with my mates, 11-year-old. And I knew I had to go and study. So I went in to study and left them playing football. I had, I had the metacognition skill. I, won't, I want to play football, but I'm a swat, so I'm going to go in. And I went in and studied, right? Now, I told that on live on the television. That night, I got a text off one of my old mates who was actually there. <laughs> he said, Luke, you were shy at football. That's, that's why you're <laughs> so, so you've got to be careful what you're saying, probably. But there is this idea of metacognition as a predictor, and I love that experiment. It really does tell us a lot. Christmas, in many ways, is a sly exercise of metacognition. Wait, you know. Parents, if you teach your kids to wait and control these things, then they might do well in life, is the idea there. And then we move on, um, having done the business of how to raise a kid, the gender topic. There's a whole chapter on that. Now, you may never have seen this. I want the, what was good about the book was they put a picture that's the X chromosome, that big one, and that's the Y chromosome, okay? That's the chromosome that determines maleness. If you carry the Y chromosome, you're male. If you carry two Xs, you're female, and that determines gender. It's not as simple as you all know. Even though that was the way we thought it was, Facebook, about three years ago, had 72 options in gender. Can you believe it? And man and woman were just two of them. I think man was number 33 and woman was number... Because people's subjective view of gender is different. So gender is a very complicated thing. It's not just about an X and Y chromosome. But still, 
general purposes, the Y chromosome means you're going to be male. And there's the hormone. It's a science book. There's testosterone. That stuff determines maleness, you know, all the traits of male. You know, your voice breaks at teenage years and all that sort of stuff. That's driven by that hormone. Now, very interestingly then in the book, I do, I do talk about transgender because it's very hard to pin it down what gender is in a way. And in Asia especially, there's an awful lot of men are less uh, masculine, shall we say, less body hair. Their voices are a bit higher, but Asian people are like that. And, and, and many, ch there's a big um, sort of number of Asian men be, be change sex and become transgender. And in Thailand, they organize a beauty contest. Every person in this picture was a man who had a sex change and became a woman. It's called the Miss Tiffany Universe Beauty Contest. And it was invented to support transgender people. It's a big celebration. It's probably the last vestige of a beauty contest we're going to have. Isn't that ironic? Will be men who became women. There's even a bikini round. What joke on you? So it's the last vestige of beauty contests will be this transgender beauty contest. And then I talk about some women have lots of testosterone naturally. You know, that's Casta Semenya, you may have heard of her. She won Olymp Olympic medals and, and they tested her, tried to ban her, which was stupid. She's naturally making more testosterone. It's like banning Michael Phelps because he's got a long leg or whatever, you know. It's a natural thing. So, so the idea of testosterone and gender, I think, is a very interesting topic. And then I talk about, um, which people are fascinated by as well, this, this chapter got huge interest. You know, the basis of being straight or gay. And that's been studied by psychologists and biologists for a long time to explain this trait. And it turns out there's big genetics if you're gay or straight is the first thing. So it's something genetic. One idea there is that um, uh, having, having gay people in the community actually helps because their sister's offspring are supported. They're called gunkles, these gay uncles, for instance. So there may be an evolutionary reason why maybe 10% of men are gay. The big one for me, though, was the best science behind this was um, birth order predicts homosexuality. Now, what do I mean? The more sons a mother has, the greater the chance of the son being gay. And it's true, it's been proven across all these cultures. What's happening is we think that the male fetus is kind of being rejected by the woman's body and testosterone probably is being regulated during development, okay? And with every baby, she's sensitized. So this might go up, that's one possible explanation. And then I talk in the book about that famous Irish thing of the seventh son of a seventh son. He must be fabulous, must he? Because the prediction there is massive, you know. So birth order seems to be a predictor of, of that specific trait, which is great. And then I get into it then, you know, what's really important about the human species is diversity, remember. We must have diversity. The one thing Darwin taught us is, without diversity, we die. Every species, the more diverse, and it can be transgender, it can be gay, straight. Diversity is great for us as a species, which is fantastic, you know. And then I talk about these other traits, and music is a big trait for humans. We all love music, hopefully. And again, this has been studied a lot. Uh, this is the brain on music in a MRI scanner. That pinky bit, it's called the fasciculus, lights up when you listen to music that you love. You know, if you're tone deaf, and a certain percent of people are tone deaf, this part doesn't light up. So we know music is sort of a real physical thing in the brain. The second thing about music is it's wonderfully beneficial. You wonder why, why would we have music, you know? And we have 50,000 years ago, we made a flute out of a mammoth bone, so it's a very ancient trait. Um, and it looks like a big function of music is social bonding as a community. When you sing in a choir, it's massively beneficial. Many studies have shown this. People in choirs are healthier. It's social. You're concentrating. It's fantastic. You know? So music seems to be tied in to us as a social species. And one other part I talk about is, why are some notes dissonant? You know, wh why do some notes jar in our brains? You know, in medieval times, um, a dissonant chord was called the devil's interval. It was used to signify evil. You know, it turns out that's learned. We learn that. 
you know, we don't like that tone, we like this one instead. That's a learned trait. The evidence was amazing. They found a tribe in the Amazon called the Chimane tribe who prefer dissonance over consonance, you know, and they much prefer music that's jarring. So it must be learned. It can't really be, you know, hardwired, I guess, is the way they, And the science of music to me is a big fascination. And then this bit is good. Um, the beneficial effects of music. You know, do you ever study with music on in the background? We all have done that. Is that good or not? And there was a great study showing, if you learn a language with music in the background, not loud music now, just a bit of music in the background, you learn 10% more words per hour than without music in the background. So music is somehow affecting our brains. And one very serious part was many surgeons put music on in the operating theater, and they've done a really systematic study, is that a good or a bad thing? And guess what it is? It's a very good thing. The outcome is often better if there's music in the background. That begs the question, what song would you play? <laughs> Staying Alive would be a good one, right? Uh, do not play, another one bites the dust. That, that's, uh, goes um, and then the last bit while I'm at it is, they use music as a form of torture, get this, uh, in Canada on teenagers to torment them if they've committed a crime. They play Barney at them for hours. Um, they tried to play Justin Bieber, but that defied the Geneva Convention, they decided. So they stuck with Barney as a way to torment the kids. But music, all these beneficial effects of music is wonderful. And then I've got a whole chapter on humor. We laugh a lot as a species, as you know. Now, many species laugh, but we're very good at laughing. And a massive study was a great one. They filmed a shopping center and looked at people laughing, right? 80% of laughter is social. It's not about jokes. So it looks like humor and laughter is about social bonding as well. Now, we like jokes, and there's all these different jokes, and the science of jokes has been studied. We love jokes that poke fun at authority, say, again, that's a bonding thing, you know. We love absurd jokes that make us laugh. So, so we love humor. And in fact, the oldest um, joke ever, uh, this is corpsing, by the way, you know, you, 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 he's not the Messiah. Uh, corpsing is quite a, I might start a corpse now, I've realized that. Um, so corpsing is thinking, but the thing is, um, what makes something funny, you know? And the oldest joke ever, get what the oldest joke ever is. It was, it's on a hieroglyph uh, in ancient Egypt. Now, it won't be funny for you, because those Egyptians have different sense of humor. But the joke was, um, a newlywed groom never farts on his wedding night. <laughs> Jane found that, thank God someone did. Um, uh, now, that is, uh, we like toilet humor don't we, you know, even the Egyptians like toilet at you, that was a good example of a, of a, of a joke. And then <laughs> the last part of that chapter has got to say, what, uh, amazingly, someone funded a study, which animals laugh when you tickle them? <laughs> I suspect Science Foundation Ireland didn't fund that project, did they? <laughs> um, and guess what laughs, not many laugh, rats laugh when you tickle them, isn't that the strangest thing ever, you know? And in that part I say, look, uh, his next, whoever this guy was, his next project will be uh, how, you know, how, how to talk to animals, and if, if, if you can talk like Dr. Doolittle, would you make an animal laugh? And I, I came up with an original joke. Are you ready for my original joke? Now make sure you laugh at this one. My, my joke is, if you're, this is to an animal, right? If, <laughs> if you're being chased by a taxidermist, never play dead. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's my, um, but there we have it, laughter and tickling. Now, then we move on to the, and there's a roll of drums, religion, you see, and, and the science of religious faith. Again, a very important part of being human. Half of the Earth's population have devout faith. There's something about religion in, in the human condition. If you're a scientist, it's a very simple thing. It's an evolved trait. We invented God, not the other way around. The reason is because it's good for you. If you believe in God, you go to mass, you socialize, that's good for your health. If there were genes for that, they would persist. So religious faith, is, we would, as a scientist, you'd say, is an evolved trait. And, and the best evidence, in my view, is this. Here's our famous book of Kells. 
Those monks were high as kites on psilocybin. That's a psychedelic, it's classic six, the most famous work of art, isn't it? <laughs> That's a disembodied head. It's a classic psychedelic image, you see. And there are hints that the monks were taking magic mushrooms as part of their religious ceremony. And many cultures took psilocybin, the Native American, or um, the peyote cactus, you know, and people see visions, you know. And in fact, this guy, Al Hoffman, he, um, he makes LSD by mistake in a lab one day in Sandoz. Like, he synthesizes LSD, has the first trip. He was absolutely converted to religious faith after that trip. And many people who take acid have a religious experience. Again, that suggests the brain, you know, and it's getting rewired in some way. So we've, the scientific explanation for faith is probably to do with brain activity, and it's a social thing is the way to think of it. And then I begin to move into, you know, other areas. Sleeping is a big part of being human. There's sleeping beauty. There's brain waves. Now, this is very sobering for you all. Uh, you are all machines, there's no question. This is the circadian rhythm. We all have a 24-hour cycle. The most dramatic thing is when you fall asleep at about like 9 p.m. or 10 in the evening. Melatonin rises, and that makes you fall asleep. You know, all through the 24-hour cycle, you peak at different times for different things. Muscle strength is best in the afternoon, for instance. You know, so we are little machines turning. You know, and our behavior as human beings then is governed by this circadian cycle set tens of thousands of years ago, this rhythm of life, I suppose, and that's what we're, we're built of in that way. And then the big question's been, what's the, why do we sleep at all? Seems like a very strange thing to do. You're very vulnerable if you fall asleep. You could be attacked, you know, whatever. Very important. If you keep an animal alive, uh, awake, it'll die within about a week. So sleep is essential for health. And the question is, what's it doing? Two years ago, they make a big discovery. When you fall asleep, Little vessels in your brain open up and you flush out the toxins, amazingly. As you, during the day, your brain is buzzing. You build up byproducts that are toxins. You flush them out at night down to your liver. It's like when you go to bed, you put the washing machine on. It's very similar. You're washing your brain at night. And of course, this is one reason why Maggie Thatcher may have got Alzheimer's. There's a big link between not sleeping enough and Alzheimer's. You know, the brain isn't being washed enough when you sleep. So sleep is a very important function to be human. You must fall asleep at night. And then we begin to get towards Extinction in the book, get ready. Don't be too depressed now. Um, the next book's aging, and we all have to get old. Isn't it shocking, you know? And why do we age? I talk about that. This creature lives for 1,400 years. It's called Hydra. Now, why does that live for? We don't know. You know, it's amazing. Bottom of the ocean, this thing lives. So it's a bit of a mystery why we age. And in fact, um, this worm is a nematode. It's microscopic. Uh, a group in the US changed four genes in that nematode and it lived four times the length of a normal nematode. Imagine if we change those four genes in humans, and we live to be four times as long. So it's very genetic. We think it's turned into nutrition. Those genes were involved in nutrient metabolism and so on. So it's something to do with nutrition. We think when we eat, we make a byproduct. It's called reactive oxygen, and that might cause the aging process to happen, and you can't get away with not eating, can you? So it seems to be tied into nutrition. And then I love this one. This is the oldest person on record. 122 years, uh, Jean Calman, although there's controversy about her, see this? Her daughter pretended to be her, <laughs> apparently. For the moment, let's keep it that she's the oldest person ever. Smoked every day of her life, isn't that fantastic? And then this is brilliant. Um, this is Acaroli. This town in Italy, loads of people live to be 90 plus, okay? And they wonder why. Now scientists have gone in there and tortured those people to death <laughs> to study them, you take blood and what is it about these people? And then you've got, this is a great study, three parts of the world, Japan, Italy, and uh, in the US, 
these are all called blue zones where people live over 100 and that the traits they all share. And the big trait actually is nutrition, definitely. Eat sparingly. Certain foodstuffs, legumes are very good for you, you know, in your diet. One that was great here was the empowered women, see that? That was a feature between the Japanese and the Italian sites, for instance. And these studies are very informative. How do we live to a ripe old age? It can be lifestyle, it can be food, all that kind of thing. And I love this one as well. Uh, a study on happiness. There's a great topic for are you human or not. Um, and this has been reproduced across several studies. You're happiest in your early 20s. And then it goes down and down and down. <laughs> and it, it bottoms out at my age uh, in your early 50s. And then goes back up again. Now, this is a very strange thing. It doesn't matter if you're married or single or gay or straight. All those traits are, it's just a human thing. Your brain is changing naturally. And eventually you realize, I have to help with this. I'm not, I'm not going to bother. I'll be happy, you know. So if you're miserable, wait. <laughs> because you'll come out the other end of it. Is the trick here. Now, finally, and time will be running out shortly. Finally, where are we going? That's the third question, okay? So where do we come from? I'll recap for you, will I? There'll be a multiple choice questionnaire as you're leaving. Um, where do we come from? 4.2 billion years ago, evolution, us, that's it. Secondly, what are we? All that wonderful stuff that makes us human, isn't it great? Where are we going? Many answers to this one. New medicines, my area, very impressed, Alexander Fleming. You know, there's no question, medical research. Here's a woman people haven't heard of, Gertrude Elion. Won the Nobel Prize for medicine um, back in 1987. She discovered new medicines for gout, malaria, and herpes. You know. So we're seeing more and more medical advances, all these new medicines down the track. There's no doubt we're all optimistic, and this has a big effect on the human species. No more Alzheimer's, imagine. No more Parkinson's, no more cancer. This is the real vista that we're now looking at. Fantastic. Gene therapy, cell therapy. Stem cells are a really great area. You can grow organs in a dish now. Uh, last year, they grew a heart in a dish, a beating heart from a cell. Can you believe it? You know, incredible. So the future is fantastic, at least if people can afford it. There's another ethical question. But certainly the future of medicine is fantastic. But never forget what our, one of our great graduates, Jane, is Jane of. Jonathan Swift said the best doctors in the world are Dr. Diet, Dr. Quiet, and Dr. Merryman. Isn't that nice? He knew what he was talking about. You know, those are the key traits. And then, you know, neuroscience is huge, obviously. What's the mind? Are we just neurotransmitters? There is anxiety, there is depression, you know, these go up. There is love, they all go up together, you know. And the mind, and at the Schrodinger conference, that was a big focus, the mind, and what is the mind, that's a big area. There's happiness with serotonin, so it's interesting. And then there's no doubt, AI, robotics, we all keep hearing about this the whole time. That will have a massive effect on us as a species. Driverless cars, are the, in Phoenix in December, the city center is just for driverless cars now. They're coming, you know, that have a massive, imagine the effect it's gonna have, no more, Parking needed, you know, anybody can get access to places, older people can get out, you know, the pubs in Ireland will thrive <laughs> because you can get a lift home. Robots are going to be everywhere. And then finally, we will die. That's where we're going, right? <laughs> and I talk about death. Um, I said in that chapter, get, get your smartphone out. You can scroll down. You'll pass a date you're going to die on. The Grim Reaper hasn't filled it in yet. That's all that's happened there, you know. So we're all going to die unless we have cryonics to preserve us as a possibility, I guess. And then extinction. The last chapter is we will definitely become extinct as a species because everything becomes extinct eventually. You know, the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. Look at this guy, the great Irish elk. We, 10,000 years ago, they were roaming around Ireland. Because what's great is they're a misnomer. They're not Irish, they're not great, and they aren't an elk. <laughs> so it's the best misnomer ever. They got wiped out. You know, this thing happened. 70% of life on Earth became extinct at the Ordovician event uh, by a massive gamma ray. 
hit the earth, you know, and the atmosphere got stripped away. So extinction is coming towards us. Now, the publisher then said to me, Luke, you can't finish on that. It's too depressing. You've got to be more positive. So the last chapter is things are getting better. And this is my last point in many ways. The great thing about science is, if we're lucky, it improves things for humanity. That's why we do science as well. Apart from answering, you know, discovery and all that sort of stuff, it benefits humanity. And the evidence is really good for this, even though there are pockets of awfulness. You know, uh, in, in, in 1916, one in two babies died in Dublin, right? Isn't that horrendous? The mother could expect one in two of her children to die. That's gone to almost zero. Uh, there's literacy. All these great advances because of science, the Large Hadron Collider, great cooperation between scientists uh, looking for fundamental particles there, great example, you know, the International Space, here's a good one, look at that. <laughs> this is for you, you know he came round about a year ago, and that was, in crikey, that looks as complicated as Brexit, there's John Bowden, one of our great machines. So, apart from Brexit, everything's going great. Um, and then the International Space Station, great collaboration, there. and finally this. So, education is so important. There's no question about this at all. The reason for all these advances, the reason why science has helped in so many ways is because of education. Without education, there's no scientists, there's no engineers, there's no doctors, that's the first thing. Secondly, education liberates people and lets them lead as full a life as possible. And I talk about this woman, Manali Yousafzai, you heard her, she's fantastic. She defied the Taliban. And women's education in particular, of course, in India, incredible, you know. I think it's only like 20 years ago, 90% of women left education at 12, now it's 18. So, they have a massive effect, education. So teachers are extremely important. And now, finally, you'll be relieved. Um, about, uh, during the old book uh, publicity, I was on Keelan Shanley's radio show on RTE. And she asked me, um, why did you do biology? And I said, well, I had a great teacher in secondary school. I, I'm from Bray, and I went to Presbury. And I said, a man called Fran Mooney was our hero. And he was. He came in. He was 26 years of age. It was 1979. He had long hair down to here. He would torn jeans. In those days, you said a prayer before every class. Remember that? He said, forget that shit. <laughs> <laughs> he said to me, remember one day in class, he said, Patrick Pierce is a pedophile. He said, that's shocking. Um, but he's a radical guy. We, we called him Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. He looked like Shaggy. He groovy guy. He taught me biology, and I mentioned him. Now, two weeks later, I got a letter from him, okay? And it says, dear Luke, he's retired. He lives in France. He's 68 now. I live in France. He says, my daughter is still living in Dublin. Heard you on the radio. Thanks very much for mentioning me. And he said, I might come to one of your lectures. Now, a month later, I gave a lecture on the book in Smock Abbey. And I'm in this part of the lecture. And I said, now, and I told the story. I said, now, is there any chance Mr. Mooney is here? He goes, sa, sa, sa. He was in the third row. <laughs> Puts his hand up. Sa. I said, well, Fran, what can I say? Um, it's a massive round of applause for Fran. It was great, you know, and he's sitting there. He's, he's a lovely fellow, very meek. And then he says, thanks very much. And then afterwards, he comes up to me, and there we are. There's me and Shaggy. Um, and it was great, this. He, he puts his hand, I put my hand out, and he grabbed me. He hugged me for like 10 seconds, like really held me close, you know. And I'm going, this is a bit strange. <laughs> and then the great thing, we parted. He said, I don't remember you. He says, <laughs> so... Thanks very much, Shaggy. Um, but wasn't this the one? That's a great story because the teachers, and we all have the same story. I bet everyone here, hopefully, oh, that was a great teacher. That, and, and there's no question, education is what it's all about. And that makes things great. And, you know, come and join us on this adventure. I then say in the last page of the book, you know, science is about improving things. We're boldly going where no one has gone before. The reason why I became a scientist was I wanted to see something for the first time. You know, imagine that moment when you see something nobody's seen before. It's fantastic. And remember, 
a lot more discovery is needed, you know, but this is the stuff we know, there's no freaking idea of the rest of it, you know. So it's a great thing to do because it's a grand adventure. And if we follow science, and we encourage people to be scientists and doctors and engineers and all the rest of it, we might finally reach the ultimate ambition, which is to live long and prosper. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs>